there were a lot of good questions. Probably won't get to all of them, in fact. Probably just a small number. So in one of my interviews, you said that I hadn't recognized doubt when I had stopped walking and couldn't make a decision which way to turn. You also said that doubt manifests in ways which are not so readily identifiable. Could you please elaborate on some of these manifestations? Uh, <clears throat> so doubt is really uh, both an interesting <coughs> and powerful uh, mind state. It's probably one of uh, the most difficult of the hindrances uh, for several reasons. One is that with all the other hindrances, like desire or anger, aversion, <coughs> sleepiness, restlessness, the mind is in the vicinity of the object. Right. It's looking through the filter of the hindrance. <coughs> so it's looking at it through desire or aversion, but it's, it's in the ballpark. When the mind is filled with doubt, it's not even in the ballpark. We're not even <coughs> connecting in any way to the particular object that's arising. And that's why it really obstructs the practice. It kind of stops the forward momentum of the practice. The reason doubt can be so seductive <laughs> and misleading is because it often comes masquerading as wisdom. We hear this voice in the mind. <clears throat> it's a very wise sounding voice. And we believe it <clears throat> because it sounds to us like it's the voice of wisdom, not recognizing that it's doubt. So just a few examples of how doubt manifests. <clears throat> At different times, every one of us has difficulties in the practice. You know, it's not smooth sailing all the time for anybody. Even Mogalana, <laughs> who got enlightened in a week. <laughs> had his problems <laughs> in that week. <laughs> I, I really like this story. <laughs> this doesn't have to do with doubt, but <laughs> in that week <clears throat> before his enlightenment, uh, <clears throat> he was suffering, he was you know, struggling with sloth and torpor, you know, and he'd be sitting there nodding. This is somebody who became you know, the chief disciple of the Buddha. And the Buddha came to know of his you know, nodding through his psychic powers, and came to him and said, Mogalana, are you nodding? Yes, Bhante, <laughs> I am nodding. Uh, kind of like, you know, can relate to <laughs> this situation. So then the Buddha gave him, you know, a lot of remedies for, for sleepiness. Uh, and, you know, a few days later, he became an arhant. <laughs> so keep that in mind, and the next time you're nodding, so we all have difficulties in our practice at different times. When these difficulties come, it's not unusual <coughs> for different kinds of doubts to arise. You know, we have doubts about the practice at those times. 
What does sitting here, feeling the breath, have to do with anything? What does it have to do with the suffering in the world? Hmm. Yeah, you know, that sounds reasonable. And we don't see it as doubt. We start believing that wise sounding voice. Maybe I should do some other practice. You know, maybe Tibetan chanting would be quicker. And we kind of go back and forth. So then we're in this per- the doubt of perplexity, but we're not seeing it as doubt. We're saying, oh yeah, should, you know, we're considering it. We think it's a wise voice in the mind which is raising this question, not seeing it as doubt. Or even within <coughs> doing this practice, we have doubts. Should I be with the breath in the rising falling or the nose? There was one yogi on a three-month retreat who spent the entire three months going back and forth, belly, nose, nose, belly, and kept on saying, it doesn't matter, just choose one. (laughs) Three months, you know, caught up in that kind of doubting mind. And not seeing as doubt, not just seeing it as doubt, being able to note it, label it as doubt. Should I do a directed awareness on the breath or should I do choiceless awareness? Oh no, I'm doing no, maybe I should do this, maybe I should do this. And we get caught up, again, thinking that it's a wise inquiry, not seeing that it's doubt. And perhaps even more um, difficult is when there's self-doubt, even if we don't have doubts about the practice, because of some condition or another, we can begin to doubt ourselves, doubt our ability to practice. And we go into our whole psychological history and story, and, well, this isn't the right time, and I have so much to do in the world. And so we believe all these thoughts, because they're masquerading as something important instead of seeing them, sim- oh, doubting mind, doubting mind. And in the moment of noting them as doubt, in the moment that we actually can be mindful and seeing it for what it is, it ceases to be a problem. Then we see, oh, doubting mind, and we see the doubt come and go, and we're not investing uh, our energy uh, into it. So be watchful. You know, when you're feeling like you're struggling and there's indecision and you're going back and forth between different things, learn to recognize that as the doubting mind. Um, And when you do, it becomes relatively easy to free the mind from being seduced by it. Okay, here were a couple of questions, all related and uh, many aspects to them. How do you balance the sense of non-self, not me or mine, with cultivating love and compassion for yourself, especially after growing up with the deeply conditioning uh, of no self-worth? Experiencing or realizing emptiness can create a sense of void or nihilism, How do we balance that mindfully so we use it to be liberated? This is a question about the morning metta chant. 
At the end of the chant, there's a line, all beings are the owners of their actions, which after the preceding chant on goodwill has the effect of slightly deflating the goodwill in my heart. What is its purpose? Equanimity. Equanimity, a question. So there's this whole big question of understanding the relationship of emptiness and what it means to the heartfelt qualities of love and compassion, whether it's for self or for oneself or for other people. And so that question, if, if there's no self, if everything is empty, where does the love come from? Where does the compassion come from? Who is it for? So the easiest way to frame this understanding, <coughs> and it's important one, it's an important framework for understanding many aspects of the Dharma, is the framework of the two truths, which I think we've spoken about. You know, the relative truth, level of relative truth, and the level of more ultimate truth. So it's true that when we are developing love or compassion or connectedness, again, whether for oneself or for other beings, we are on the level of relative truth because we're on the level of beings. We don't say, may your five aggregates be happy and healthy. You know, we're not on that level. We're on the level of a person, of a being. And that is a conceptual level, but it is one of the levels. It's the relative level, you know, of truth, of conventional reality. It's the level that we live on, in fact, most of the time. The more ultimate level is seeing that, yes, what we call being, what we call self, is just the interplay of these five aggregates, and there's really no being or person there. This is not a contradiction. This is just entering into our experience on different levels. And we need to integrate the understanding of both levels. It's possible to become attached or cling to either of those understandings. Most people who are not Dharma practitioners are more attached and cling to the level of concrete relative reality, attached to the level of things and people and the solidity of everything. This is the normal way of the world. And in the course of our meditation practice, we begin to see, oh yeah, everything we think is solid and stable and substantial, we begin to see beneath that level to the level of anicca, of change. That everything is arising and passing away and we begin to see the constituent elements of what we call self, or I, or man, or woman. So our practice begins to weaken our attachment to the relative level. It does not imply disengagement. It implies not clinging. 
not solidifying, being on that level with wisdom. On the other side, people can become attached to some notion or even some experience of emptiness. And this is even more of a problem. And it's said in in different texts that people can be helped with their attachment to the relative level, through the understanding of impermanence and our practice. When people are attached to the notion of emptiness, it's extremely hard to come out of that because everything gets up-leveled. You know, whatever, whatever situation of suffering arises, either within ourselves or other, oh, it's all empty. It's all empty, there's nothing to do, there's no one there. And that's attachment to emptiness. That's not the full realization of emptiness. And so we want to be careful, you know, of not getting attached on either side. Two examples of how they actually become unified, where we operate on both levels, on the level of being to being, cultivating love, cultivating compassion, connectedness, at the same time understanding the empty nature of it all. So this is not an either or, our practice is the unification in our understanding of these two levels. And <clears throat> just as, as two expressions of this, somebody once asked Deepa Ma, you know, should I practice metta or should I practice vipassana, mindfulness? And from Deepa Ma's perspective, and she, she gave a really interesting answer, for her they had become the same thing. She said, when you're loving, aren't you also mindful? And when you're mindful, aren't you also loving? And it's really interesting, and maybe you've had this experience, when we are settled into the flow of mindfulness, of awareness, what's the quality of the heart at that time? The quality of awareness actually has part of it is that quality of metta, of loving kindness, in the form of openness, acceptance. In mindfulness, it's not so much we're, we're reciting, may you be happy, but the feeling tone imbued in awareness is one of openness. We're openness to whatever is going on. And one time I was, uh, when I was practicing in India, I had gone into the village of Bodh Gaya and sitting with friends, you know, at a chai shop. And I was having a bad headache. And Manindraji, my first teacher, you know, was walking by and he came over and he said, how are you? And I said, oh, you know, I have this really bad headache. And he looked at me and he said, I hope you are enjoying it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't think I was at the time. (laughs) But that's that quality that we can bring in mindfulness. That quality of connectedness, 
you know, of openness, of acceptance. So there's one other teaching which uh, says the same thing in, in quite a powerful way. This is uh, a teaching from Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, who was you know, one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters of the last century. He's really a great master. And he talks about this union of the two levels. And so this troublesome ego, which is so concerned about itself, has in reality never begun to exist. It does not exist anywhere now. And so it cannot cease to exist. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. So just, I'm going to go on, but just this point is really important. The self is not something we need to get rid of. It was never there in the first place. It's not here now. And so we need to come to that understanding. Not the slightest trace of it can be found. When you recognize the empty nature, therefore any notion of there being an ego to dissolve vanishes. So when we understand the emptiness of this process, empty phenomena rolling on, that's just moment after moment, knowing an object arising and passing away. When we can experience this in our practice, any notion of there being an ego to dissolve, that notion of self, that notion of ego, uh, vanishes. And at the same time, and this is one of the key points, when you recognize the empty selfless nature, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. When we realize the selfless nature of it all, it does not result in kind of separation or disengagement or because all that would be predicated on a self-disengaging. When we recognize the selfless nature of it all, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. So this was for me a really important moment when I began to have you know, uh, a deeper understanding of this, you know, you're probably familiar, although it's not part of our tradition, uh, the Bodhisattva vows, you know, and some of the, the Mahayana, Vajrayana traditions take vows, you know, I vow to awaken uh, all beings. I vow to save all beings. And so I had heard that and read that for years and years and years. And it always felt inspiring, but also completely impossible. You know, what does it even mean? You know, how can I possibly save all beings? And so even though I kind of appreciated it, I, I did not connect as something, you know, I could possibly do. But then at a certain point in understanding in a little deeper way what Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche was saying here, in understanding that in the understanding of selflessness 
compassion, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless, began to see that compassion is the activity of emptiness. And so it's not resting on the shoulders of a self, but rather there is this natural responsiveness. The less self-centered we are, on all levels, on a psychological level, on an emotional level, on a dharma level, the less there is of a self-center, the activity of that understanding is compassion because there's a natural responsiveness to situations. And so it's not someone being compassionate and it's not someone saving all beings. It's just the Dharma manifesting. Compassion is the activity of emptiness. And so it's just important, you know, in this bigger question of really understanding how all of these integrate love and compassion and connectedness and selflessness and emptiness. It's to remember the frame of the two truths, the level of conventional reality and the level of more ultimate reality, not being attached to either. Because if we're attached to either, we can't integrate the two of them together. Is this reasonably clear? And this it's really a, an important point in the maturing of our practice of understanding the union of the of the relative level and the more ultimate level of understanding. Okay, can you talk about the power of accurate noting? I've noticed when the language is just precise, I'm not sure I can read these words, a certain, looks like alchemy or freedom, there's release. So when the, when the language, when the when noting is accurate, it feels like there's a release. How does this work? And are there any benefits of not noting? I think accuracy of noting is particularly helpful when it feels like there's some stuckness in the mind. You know, when we're with some perhaps mind state or some state in the body, and it feels like we're not in the flow of things arising, but it's stuck in some way, that can often be because we're misperceiving what it is that's happening. So I'll give you an example. Found this particularly helpful with different mind states and emotions. So at one point in my practice, I was just feeling, I was feeling a lot of sadness. And I was just noting sadness, sadness, sadness. But it felt, it felt lodged, you know, it felt stuck in some way. It didn't feel, didn't have that ease of flow of movement. So then I looked more carefully, okay, what, what really is going on here? And I saw that it wasn't sadness, it was unhappiness. And these are close, but they're different emotions. As soon as I could label it and note it accurately, it was aligning with what was actually there, 
in that alignment there could be acceptance. And as soon as I could accept what was what was there and I was seeing it accurately, that's when kind of the flow and the movement started again. So sometimes when we're misperceiving what's there, we're misaligned. And in the misalignment there's not the capacity for acceptance. And when there's not acceptance, we get stuck. So when there's, when there's an easy flow of phenomena, I wouldn't be too overly concerned with precision of noting. You know, if you use the noting just to, to help connect you with what's there, that's, that's fine. But when there's that stuck quality, then really to look and see, okay, is the note accurate or is it not accurate? And try a few things out. You know, you might have to experiment a bit till you, till you find exactly what it is that's going on. As I said, this is particularly helpful with mind states and moods and emotions. Also, I, did I mention in one of the talks uh, my complaining mind story? Uh, yeah, okay. That, that's another example. <laughs> when I was in Burma, and there was, for those of you who may not have been here, a lot of noise and disturbance and my mind was very upset and I was caught up in the upsetness but as soon as I could accurately see it as complaining mind and could note it accurately then I was unhooked from it and it just arose and passed away so it's in those situations that accuracy can really help okay I'm on a roll here I'll tell you another accuracy story Okay, so, you know, IMS is, this is, this is its 40th year. So for the first 13 or 14 years, uh, I lived right in the building. Um, you know, I just had a room and, that, and often when I left, you know, go teach, somebody used the room, then I had to move to another room. But I was pretty young then, and it seemed fine. By the time I hit 40, which is now quite a few years ago, <laughs> I, had had an, I had enough of communal living. <laughs> you know, I need some space. <laughs> but of course, you know, I didn't have any, really any financial resources at the time at all. And so through some Dharma miracle, some very, very generous yogi and friend offered to pay for a house for Sharon and myself. You know, and so we built kind of this duplex house next to the center. And I was just so happy to you know, have some space. So the house was built and I move in. I, I sat for a month self-retreat when I first moved in. <laughs> And I had a total mind attack. This is too nice. I shouldn't be living in such a nice space. Dharma teachers should live in a hut in the woods. <laughs> I'm gonna just give it up. I'll, I'll let the staff have it. <laughs> I just, for weeks, my mind was just 
roiling, you know, with this. Until finally, this, this gets to the, the point of accurate noting. So I was, you know, all, all of this upset in the mind. Um, and then finally, what's going on here? And then I saw, oh, there's embarrassment. That was the feeling. I was, kind of, I was embarrassed by just having this nice place to live. As soon as I named it, oh, embarrassment, oh. I'd much rather feel embarrassment than move out of the house. <laughs> so it's just another example of, you know, seeing accurately, oh, there's this. And in that, we can be accepting of it. And in the accepting of it, we can let it go. So there are times when accuracy of noting can really help liberate the mind. But also keep in mind, this is the next part of the question, uh, the essence of the practice is not the note. The essence of the practice is awareness. And the noting is a useful tool, you know, and it's a useful tool for some people and not necessarily for all. And it's a useful tool sometimes for the entire duration of one's practice, or maybe it's a useful tool at different times in one's practice. You know, and so you need to experiment a little bit. It's possible to be mindful. It's very possible to be mindful and aware without the noting. You know, we're, we're just in the experience, aware of what's happening moment to moment. And so then, really what the noting means is noticing. Not necessarily using a word, but we're there, we're connected. And so you just need to see, to experiment and even alternate at times. You know, at times use the noting and using it quite precisely in moment to moment. Then you can let the noting go and simply be in the noticing of what's happening and watch, does the mind stay as connected or does it begin to space out? You know, if you find that you begin to wander a lot, you can come back and use the noting again. So understand it as a skillful tool to use when it's helpful. You mentioned that if we feel in integrity, integrity around our sila, that other people's judgments and opinions about us can more easily be recognized as external perceptions. Uh, that was in quotes, so can be recognized just as external uh, perceptions. But even when I feel in integrity around my sila, I still fall prey to my perceptions of what others think about me. What are some tips for practicing with this? So much dukkha. Okay, so this is, I think a, a really interesting question. You know, when we have this uh, 
might say, oversensitivity and caring about what we think other people think of us. You know, and then a lot of comparing and a lot of self-judgment. There is a lot of dukkha that comes from that. So this question really can point to an investigation of where happiness lies. Where is genuine happiness to be felt? So in this kind of situation that the question raised, we are placing the source of happiness in other people's good opinion of us. You know, if we feel that other people like us or praise us or have good opinion, then we'll be happy. And if people, if we perceive that other people, you know, are judging us or blaming us or critical of us, then we'll be unhappy. And so we're placing the power for our happiness in our perception of what other people are thinking. But I think you all have the basic understanding that even though that may be a habit of mind that is playing itself out, I think you all have the realization that genuine happiness has nothing to do with what other people may be thinking or not thinking about us, but rather with the quality of our own mind states. If we have wholesome states of mind, that is the source of happiness, not what's going on in other people's minds. So just uh, just a little experiment. Just imagine that the person sitting next to you is having all these terrible thoughts about you. Now, just just imagine, what do you care? (laughs) 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 They're the ones whose minds are getting disturbed with with those negative thoughts. As I say, if, if our behavior, if our sila is strong, so we have no cause for remorse, and we have wholesome mind states, and we recognize that that really is the source of our happiness, then we become very independent of what's going on in other people's minds about us. They'll think what they think, and first of all, there's no control over it, and more importantly, it doesn't really have, it need not have any impact on our own minds and our own happiness if we realize that in fact it doesn't. It's only our thought that this is causing, you know, some dukkha for me. That's the dukkha. It's not that it actually is. So there's a a story that came to mind in thinking about this question. about 20 miles from here, quite nearby, there's a, a big Trappist Abbey. 
And for a while, some of the Trappist monks, just a couple of them, were coming to sit at IMS, and a couple of them did one or more three-month courses. And one of them was named uh, Father Theophane. And he died some years ago, and he was he was a fantastic he was a fantastic monk. He, he looked like one of these mad Russian monks. <laughs> he had this beard, and he had this uh, just a power in his eyes. And he was a remarkable person. You know, he was hugely loving and, and connected and deep and. So he was, he was really great. He, he did a couple of three-month courses. And he wrote a little book called The Magic Monastery. It was just kind of tale, tales of a monastery. And one of the stories in this book, it's actually the only one I remember, even though I remember enjoying the book. But this particular story uh, really caught my attention. So it was about a person who through some, through some magic, no matter what he did, everybody loved him. You know, no matter how he treated people, it didn't, people, just, people just loved him. And it, this, the story goes through all you know, the kind of things he does and a lot of unskillful things, didn't matter. You know, he, was, he was completely loved. And he became more and more uh, miserable, you know, because he was doing more and more unwholesome things because it didn't matter. People loved him no matter what he did. And after a while he was just, even though everybody was loving him, he was just caught in his own internal suffering. And then again, through some magic, he kind of asked for help from the Davis or whoever, and things got switched around so that whatever anybody did to him, he still loved them. And so then the story of people doing all kinds of horrible things to him, but he just loved them. No matter what they did, they loved him. Which one of these do you think was happier? Right? In the first instance, he became miserable. In the second instance, because his heart was filled with love, no matter what people did, he enjoyed that peace and happiness. And so it's just a good lesson that how we feel is up to us. It doesn't really matter you know, how other people are viewing us or their opinions. or If we know in ourselves and if we are experiencing in ourselves wholesome mind states. Uh, so when we recognize this, it's very freeing. You know, because as I mentioned, I think, either last week or the week before, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, these, these are the things that come and go in everybody's life. It doesn't matter. You know, if we're resting in that understanding of where happiness is really to be found. Okay. What is cowboy dharma? This is Joseph's contribution to the Dharma. <laughs> I'm sure most of you have heard me talk about this. 
So when we are stuck in a pattern of suffering, a thought pattern, or an emotional pattern triggered by some very seductive thought, and this happened to me on retreat, which is where all of this evolved, and we've seen that pattern 10,000 times. So we're not learning anything new from it at that point. It's just, it's the repetition of some, some thoughts, some feelings, some emotion of suffering. And over and over and over again, we get caught in it. We get seduced by the thought. At the point where we are no longer learning from being with it, it is more, I found, it more helpful, and again, uh, early on I spoke of this, it's basically the wisdom of no. No, I don't need to do this. Enough. And so, I expressed it in terms of cowboy dharma with this one thought that I had that was just taking me on this dukkha trip, you know, over and over and over again. And seeing that if I didn't catch the thought in the very moment that it arose, it was so seductive, I was just in it. Half an hour later, I'd be coming out of the story. So at a certain point, after about a month of struggling with this, I realized, okay, I can't give it a moment's airtime. So as soon as the first word, the first two words of the thought came, uh, but that's cowboy dharma, or cowgirl dharma, you know, or cow person dharma. Just as soon as it, it was amazingly effective. You know, it just cut it. I just did not allow that thought to proceed, and the mind got much freer from that particular pattern. Now the key, and I think I've talked about this, it has to be done not with aversion. It's not hating the thought. It has to be done actually with a sense of humor. And that's why I like the mudra. (laughs) 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 Because, I mean, just just as your response now, that's the response in the mind. so you might try it, and even, you know, in Tibetan practice, they often use a lot of different mudras symbolizing different things. So when you're sitting here, maybe minus the sound effects, but <laughs> if you're in your room, maybe. <laughs> it's, very <laughs> it's very empowering to realize that we do not have to be the victims of unwholesome patterns. You know, and really all of the Buddha's teachings are about how to free ourselves from unwholesome mind states that are causing suffering. They're causing suffering to ourselves, they're causing suffering to others. And sometimes it's about opening to being gentle with, allowing, Sometimes that's the strategy. And sometimes the strategy has, no. So, take out your six shooter.
I don't think you're going to find that in the suttas. <laughs> although, although the, uh, I don't remember the exact sequence, but the Buddha does talk about how to remove unskillful thoughts. You know, and there's a whole list. And one of them is just, uh, I forget the, you know, gritting the teeth, or <laughs> you know, with, with force, not, not giving into it. And so a lot of the joy of practice is uh, also being creative, you know, of investigating. It's really investigating the Four Noble Truths. Okay, if we're in a situation of suffering, instead of just kind of drowning in it or being overwhelmed by it, if we take interest in what's happening in the mind, okay, something's going on here. We are 100% responsible for that suffering. No one is making us suffer. It's because we're relating in a certain way, in a certain unskillful way to what's arising. And so whatever is arising, whatever state of suffering is in the mind, if we have the interest in the, um, yeah, the interest to investigate and just to play you know, with different skillful means, that brings a lot of energy to the practice. Okay, please give your understanding of the words, these words we use in the chants. Davis, guardian spirits of the world, celestial beings, threefold bliss. Uh, I actually had to look up threefold bliss. <laughs> Couldn't. Uh, so, you know, in the Buddhist cosmology, um, it's a vast cosmology. You know, it talks about, uh, I think it's, I may have the number wrong, but I think it's 31 planes of existence, 31, 32, something like that. You know, from the lower realms of suffering to the human realm, animal realm, human realm, then there are uh, celestial realms of sense pleasures, then there are the Brahma realms, you know, come about through states of deep absorption, and then the Brahma realms of form, the formless realms. And so Devas, you know, and celestial beings referred to beings on these, on these higher planes. When I first went to India and studied with Manindraji, because I had never heard about any of that, I didn't know about it. But he loved talking about it. He had trained Deepama, you know, this amazing teacher and yogi. He had trained her not only in Vipassana, but in all, this, all the levels of samadhi and how, you know, the, the various powers of mind that can be developed and which, which are taught. You know, there's a methodology for developing them. So he taught her how to do all this and she would go, you know, visit all these realms and report back. Uh, and so he loved to talk about it. And a lot of the Westerners were very skeptical, you know, because it's not necessarily part of our scientific framework. I loved hearing about it. You know, it made me really happy. Um, <laughs> Manindra would always end these discussions by saying, you don't, you don't need to believe this. It's true, but you don't need to believe it. <laughs> So that's what Davis and guardian spirits and celestial beings, it's referring to beings on these other planes. So the threefold bliss, which is in the chant we do at the end, 
I've seen two different interpretations. One is the bliss or the happiness of the human realm, of the celestial realm of sense pleasures, no, of the celestial realm, all the higher beings, and then the bliss of Nibbana, the highest peace. So that's one formulation. And the other formulation doesn't allude to the human realm, but rather to the celestial Brahma realms of form, formlessness, and the highest peace. So it's basically the threefold bliss refers to the kinds of happiness that we can experience as human beings. You know, it's really alluding to the potential of all our minds. What are good questions to ask yourself when meditating? So there are a few questions that can be helpful. And uh, Saito Tejaniya, he, he refers a lot, he uses, he uses these questions very often in his teaching. Um, one that I think is extremely helpful is when we're lost in some train of thought or thought pattern, especially repeatedly, just to ask ourselves the question, is this helpful? Is this useful? So somebody once asked, I was teaching a retreat in California, and somebody said, toward the end of the retreat, we're talking about going back into the world. You know, there had been a lot of teaching about staying in the present moment and not getting lost in the future. And they're saying, you know, I'm going to be leaving. I need to go to the airport. I need to make plans. This is important. You know, what happens if I miss the plane? And then what will I do? Uh, so he said, isn't there some value in that kind of thinking? And I said, yes, there is value. But the 17th time we're having the thought, it's not, it's not helpful at that point. It's helpful once or maybe twice. But as I'm sure you recognize, we often just get caught in the repetition. It might be planning, it might be you know, some pattern or other. Asking, is it useful? Is this helpful at this point? And that often is enough for us to let go of it. One thing that we've mentioned in the morning, to just check, ask the question with regard to any aspect of our experience. Could be something as simple as feeling the breath, or a sensation, or an emotion. What's the attitude in the mind about it? So it's just checking to see, is there some leaning into it? Is there some pushing away? Is there some uh, clinging or aversion? So that's an interesting question. What's the attitude? And to do that, you know, you could do it three, four, five, six times in a sitting or in a walking. It's just checking because often the mind states of some kind of desire, some kind of resistance, aversion are there and we're not seeing them. You know, and so we're with our experience looking through the filter of them unknowingly. So asking the question is just a way of seeing. Whenever there's a sense of struggle, whenever you're struggling, it feels like you're struggling in the practice, and we've all had that experience, a very 
important question to ask, and there's also an energetic move, when we're struggling, it's like settling back, opening up from whatever it is that we're struggling with, opening up the attention and asking the question, okay, what's happening? Just what's happening now? Because struggle means that something is happening that we're not accepting. Because if we were accepting it, we wouldn't be struggling. But often, we're not aware of what we're not accepting. You know, it might be some discomfort in the body, it might be some unpleasant mood, it might be the fact that the mind is thinking a lot. You know, maybe we're struggling to be with the breath and the mind is agitated. So we we realize we're struggling, we say, what's happening? Oh, agitation. Oh, complaining mind. Oh, embarrassment. You know, whatever it is, when we open to what's there, then the struggle stops. So asking the question in times of struggle, what's happening? According to Buddhism, dukkha, which is usually translated as suffering, is caused by clinging. If I hit my toe on a stone, then there is pain that is suffering, which is not caused by clinging. Is not bodily pain dukkha, or is its translation as suffering wrong? So this is actually, there's a lot in this question, because it has to do with the understanding of dukkha. So as you know, suffering is just one English translation of the word, and it's just part of what dukkha means. Because dukkha also refers to the unsatisfying nature of experience, of any experience. Why is it unsatisfying, ultimately? Because it's changing. So no matter what the experience is, it is all dukkha in the sense it is not capable of giving us a lasting satisfaction precisely because it doesn't last. So it's just to have a broad understanding of what dukkha means. It's interesting with bodily pain, it would be interesting to really uh, explore the difference in your experience between pain and suffering, because it's possible to experience pain without mental suffering. So we're experiencing unpleasant feeling. It's unpleasant sensation. But if the mindfulness is strong, we can be experiencing that unpleasant sensation actually with a pleasant state of mind. And that's what Munindraji meant, are you enjoying your headache? I'll just give you an extreme example of this. This goes back many, many years and was not on a retreat. I was visiting a friend in California and he had a car with, you know, a bench seat in the front, you know, so three people could sit in the front seat. And he was driving and I was in the middle and 
I got in and I just had my arm on the back of the seat. And the next person came in and closed the door on my finger. And <laughs> even now, just thinking about it, <laughs> it really hurt. I mean, it was so, so painful. And it was, you know, and the blood had uh, pulsing under the nail, you know, and so just that intense. Uh, so all night, I was, I was awake all night, you know, just feeling the pain. The pain was so compelling that my mind got extremely concentrated. You know, I was just all night, I was, there was no sloth and torpor. <laughs> you know? And it was so interesting, to, as the mind got more and more concentrated, it's not that the pain went away, it was still painful, but the mind was so clear and so light and so easeful in the experience of the pain. You know, so it's just interesting to see that there's a possibility where pain is not dukkha in the sense of mental suffering. Uh, you know, that depends on the quality in our mind. Okay, maybe just one last question. Hmm. Well, there are a lot of good questions. I'll just maybe we'll have another Q and A session. But how do you keep your practice fresh, vivid, and alive? So I think that's a question that, at different times for all of us, you know, comes up. For me, the, the uh, thing that has kept the practice so alive, you know, over all these years, is um, it's just that interest in investigation. You know, it's like this question, what is all of this about? You know, this life is such a mystery, you know, and we just find ourselves here you know, and the mind <laughs> uh, the mind just does so many different things, you know, and to take an interest mm, very specifically in, you know, when there's some suffering going on, really wanting to understand that, as I mentioned, if there's suffering in the mind, instead of just collapsing you know, under it, just having that investigation, okay, what's causing it? What, what's happening in the mind that is causing this suffering? So that's that close interest. And even when there's not suffering, just an interest in understanding, I think I've mentioned to you, this is just one example, there, there are countless examples, but One of the things I love doing now in my practice, both in the sitting, but even more outside of the sitting, whether in walking meditation or just walking about, I love paying attention to those very light thoughts 
that are passing through the mind, you know, that are not problem. The thoughts are not problematic. They're not any big drama. But there are many. You know, many, many light thoughts keep coming through. And mostly we're unaware. We're not mindful in the moment that they're there. But in watching that process, and I think I've talked about this a bit, in the moment that they're there, it's like entering into the dream. You know, we're in the dream of that thought for that particular time. And then the thought leaves and we're, we're again back, you know, doing whatever we're doing. And so to see again and again these mind-created worlds that we're living in, and that we're living in a lot. You know, and depending on what those thoughts are, we are creating our inner, in, our, our inner dream environment. So it's fascinating just to watch this process through the day and seeing it, seeing the mind enter the dream or, or being in the dream and then coming out of it, and this could all be in 30 seconds. You know, these are not big dramas. These are just, these are just the light thoughts passing through. But in that moment of coming out, there is a vivid recognition of what wakefulness means. Because we've just come out of the dream. You know, so it's reinforcing our connection to the mind of awareness, to the mind of, of wakefulness. Um, so it's this kind of interest in our lives and how our lives are unfolding that really does keep the practice very vivid. And the key to all of it is close attention. What are close attention to the body, close attention to what's happening in the mind? It's to realize that disinterest or boredom really only means lack of attention. It's not that our lives are boring. It's not that the activity we're doing is boring. Boredom or disinterest means the attention is no longer close. So if we take that as feedback and just bring the attention in close to whatever it is, could be to a movement. It could be to these very light thoughts. It could be to the nature of awareness itself. Bringing the attention in close creates this interest and vividness. So I would encourage you to cultivate that quality. Okay, let's remind ourselves of the threefold bliss. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.